This episode is brought to you by Canela Bistro and Wine Bar, serving Spanish plates and over 70 wines from Spain in the heart of San Francisco. Visit us socially at Canela SF and canelasf.com. You're listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind with Matt Schuster. We're getting inside the brilliant and delicious minds of remarkable culinary individuals. We're telling stories, cutting up, and breaking it down. Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Chandra Rem, Editor-in-Chief of Plate Magazine. How are you doing? Doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. So I feel like we'd be a little bit remiss if we didn't just acknowledge the fact that we are doing this over over Zoom. It is COVID pandemic time, and this is how people communicate now. It feels like a century ago that we sat in your restaurant and actually recorded this with microphones and sat less than six feet apart from each other, but... I have I have a dream that that happened once. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and, and at that time we were all so so young and naive. You know, who knew that this was just around the corner? You know, exactly. But it's where we are now. So so I, I took a trip to New York a while back to interview some chefs for the podcast, and one of the chefs was your suggestion, Chef Chris Chung of Eastwind Snack Shop, and he was a super fun interview. We had a great time. So. Why did you suggest to me to interview Chris? What what made him show up on your short list of suggestions of people to interview for the podcast? You know, I just, I think Chris is just fascinating. I first met him and had his food when he was the chef at Monkey Bar in New York. So this is kind of coming on probably 10 years ago. I think he's just so fascinating to talk to. He's got like a million stories. I just really love his perspective. I mean, he's got all of this very classic European-based experience and education. And then he's also spent time in China. But he's very cognizant of being a chef in America, being someone who's of a generation that is saying, okay, these are the traditions that my family has in the past. But hey, you know, like I'm not living in China right now. I'm in New York and doing this. And he's both unafraid of making the food his own, but also very respectful of the tradition. I really appreciate that about him. You know, my parents are immigrants and all of us kind of like immigrant kids, like you walk this line of being like, no, I totally respect how you guys did this when you were like, you know, in my case, growing up in India or for my mom, Ireland. But I'm like, okay, but I'm going to do it this way. So in this episode, we talk a lot about his experience growing up as a child of immigrants in Chinatown and, you know, how there was a, a huge sense of community and, and everybody really looked out for each other. I really struggle with neighborhoods like Chinatown because it's like one thing, it's, you know, it's so great to go there and walk around and pick up dumplings at one place. And like, I always love checking out the grocery stores and seeing like what they have in the different markets in that. And it's really cool because I also really, I love the fact that people from similar backgrounds can be with each other and that they can forge that sense of community. But I also, where I struggle is the fact that 
I think we're like, we're also used to saying the word Chinatown. One time when I was in San Francisco and I saw a sign pointing towards Japantown that I was just like, oh, wow, that's like a super racist name. And so is Chinatown. People say, oh, like, oh, and here's like the little India section in that. And it really kind of hits this balance of, I go to the Indian district in Chicago. It's on a street called Devon Avenue. And so people just kind of say, oh, I'm going up to Devon. I see the value in everything in a lot of those businesses being together. And I also see how they had to be together to survive and the value that would be in those businesses being spread out throughout the city. So I have very, I have very mixed emotions about it because it's like, I love it. And I also feel like how much of that is some kind of social segregation that we've all just been used to. Right, right. It's true. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, I would imagine as an immigrant coming to the United States, you would want to be around people who speak the same language and have the same customs as you as a comfort. But it would probably be nice to be given the choice <laughs> to go where you want to go and not be forced into one neighborhood. And I totally, And I totally see that. Yeah. And I also recognize, you know, a lot of people are coming over and there could be a language barrier that would make it so that they need to be around other people from their district or their state in another country. I wonder if the conversation happening now about cultural appropriation and Columbusing and food is going to impact those neighborhoods because some of them are, you know, some of them are extremely old, some of them, and they're classic in that, and others are, they're newer. Do you have any memories of the food that you had eaten from Chef Chris? I just think his dumplings are some of the best that I've ever had. And it's such a thing with with dumplings that a lot of times they're okay, but not good. There's a lot of good, not great dumplings out there. And his, I don't know what he does. I should talk to him and find out. Um, <laughs> but I feel like there's there's a certain amount of seamlessness between the filling and the wrapper that it's not, they're more cohesive and part of the whole as opposed to just sort of like filling, rattling around in a skin. And I think his food is very elegant too. He has four Eastwind snack shops now. He's up to four locations. So I hope that all of those will, you know, make it out of this crazy time okay. And we're going to go ahead and, and listen now to Chef Chris's interview. Thank you for joining me. If, if you want to shout out to Chandra, it's at Chandra's Plate on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much for joining me. Next time I see you, you owe me dumplings because now I'm really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do a dumpling date next time. That sounds fantastic. All right. Well, here we go. Let's go. Chef Chris Chung is a New York City native who grew up in the heart of Chinatown. He was brought up around great Cantonese food from his family and then went on to study cooking at New York Restaurant School where he graduated with honors. Right out of school, he started working with Jean-Georges at Vong, the first upscale Thai restaurant of its time. Then he went on to open Nobu in Tribeca as part of the original kitchen staff cooking with Iron Chef Morimoto. He helped them earn three stars from the New York Times, and he studied extensively in Asia, and now he is the chef and owner of four locations of East Wind Snack Shop in New York. If you want to check out Chef Chris on Instagram, it's at Chef Chris Chung, C-H-E-U-N-G, or East Wind Snack Shop at East Wind Snack Shop. 
All right, welcome back. I'm here with Chef Chris Chung. How you doing? Good, thank you. Thanks for coming out here and doing this. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. You hey, know, of course. No problem, anytime. So we're going to dive right in. Tell me about who cooked growing up. Well, yeah, of course. So I grew up in a Toysanese house in Chinatown, little tenement in the middle of Mott Street, New York City. And my grandparents came to America in like the early 1900s. I'm talking like 1920, something like that. And so they set up and settled down in Mott Street. And that's where I grew up. And my grandmother, like all old school households, she did the cooking. Mm. When you're a kid, all you know it is food. You don't know it is Chinese food. Right, right. Chinese food. Right. You know, you don't know how, you know, you, you don't. Think about how great and what how lucky you are mm-hmm. to have, you know be around all that sort of great food mm-hmm. that came later. At the time, it was I'm hungry, feed me, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother worked all day, so my grand. What did she do? We was we were in Chinatown, so you know there was only so many things you could do. So she worked in the. Uh, clothing factory. Hmm. She was a seamstress. Mm-hmm. We call them sweatshops. Mm. And those were the type of establishments that, you know, you work all day and they pay you by the piece. You, mm-hmm. you know, you'd sew a button on and you'd get a penny per mm. button. And she would... By the hour. Yeah. yeah. By the hour. Yeah. We'd hope that it was by the hour. No, yeah. there was no by the hour. Yeah. Uh, so what were they making at her shop? They were making, you know, mass-produced clothes. Mm. It wasn't a shop. It was a factory. Mm. So you have these old factories. They're no longer in Chinatown. They're part of the past. People have long forgotten them, Mm. but they are part of history. They were the, I guess, the armpit of the fashion industry on 7th Avenue. You know, you'd have the great fashion lines and, you know, the runways, stuff like that. But the people who were making the clothes were really poor people that just needed to work all day to put money in their pockets so they Mm. could put food on the table for kids like me who were growing up as the first generation in New York for uh, Chinese immigrants. Mm. And whatever they did, it obviously worked because, you know, they taught you to be an entrepreneur. I would like to think that it gets better with every generation. So my son will be a highly successful person when he gets older. But, you know, again, it's stuff that you don't think about when you're growing up. We grew up hard and tough and poor. What kinds of foods were on the table? So my grandmother would cook authentic Toysanese food. There mm-hmm. was a dish called hamdan gukbang, mm-hmm. and that's really a pork patty with these mm. salted eggs. So mm-hmm. right now you can't really get the salted eggs in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it like a dry, like a dry So salted? basically what they do is they take an egg, a duck uh-huh. egg, uh-huh. and they bury it in the ground. Uh-huh. And they have these sort of minerals and there's certain things that they specifically put where uh-huh. they bury like it. some kind of a but it's buried kind in, of thing. Yeah, it's buried for about 60 days. Wow. And the white is still runny, but the oh, yolk wow. gets a little bit hard. Wow. And, you know, part so of it's the... buried raw. Yeah, it's still yeah. raw, but, yeah. in, you know, raw as in the fermented type of sure, raw. Sure, sure, type sure, of raw. sure. And the... The yolk and the egg, since what it's sitting in is a lot of minerals, but also a lot of salt. The salt seeps in and preserves it, cures it, and also imparts an extremely salty flavor, which if you thought about it, tasting it, it's super salty. It's like a salt bomb. It's something that you wouldn't like, but think about yourself as a person, as a human being in 1300. Sure. Oh, sure. And you're sitting in, you know, the northern part of China. And what you grew for the year and the summer and your crops and your chickens, they're all going to die come December. Right. Yeah. There's no, there's <laughs> no know? fridge. Yes. There's no walk-in cooler. Yes. So, you know. <laughs> no freezer, no deep freeze. China was really good at inventing things that preserved food for the yeah. long haul. Yeah. And 
it becomes part of the culinary fabric mm -hmm. and people get a taste for that. It's no longer a matter of survival. It's a matter of, man, can I get another, you know, when, when's the last time I ate a great salted egg? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that, that was for us. So it starts out with human survival and down the line as technology gets better, it becomes a signature part of a cuisine. Mm -hmm. And so all these fermented and preserved and cured things still existed and still were cooked by my grandmother. We had more familiar stuff too. My family still makes my grandmother's chicken wing recipe. Mm. So chicken wings were cheap, you know, back then as mm -hmm. they still are mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And it was a nice quick form of meat that she could prepare. How did but she they cook were it? Awesome, you know, marinated in wine and oyster sauce and soy sauce mm. and ginger and you know, a few other things and, and you know, and, and then and then to slow bake them where they just got tender and soaked in the mm. marinade and, and so caramelized. That was one of my favorite things growing up. And and then you know, I I mentioned the salted egg. So that salted egg also would sit in a patty of hand chopped pork hmm. with water chestnuts. And it's a classic dish that you could find in almost every region mm -hmm. in, in China. And was it cooked further or it was eaten in that state? So basically what you would do is you'd hand chop the pork and uh -huh. then you'd steam it and then you'd drop that egg on top of it and the egg would steam oh, onto it. the cake oh, and wow. then basically you the cake would uh, come out of the steamer and you know it's very simple you know it's uh home home food it's home comfort food mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know peasant food mm -hmm. you can't get better than that you'd lay it on the table and you know you take your chopsticks and you have your bowl of rice and you mm. pick out some of the egg and you know of course it's a big family would have could you eat it as a sandwich to americanize it <laughs> you know i gotta tell you we were poor right our sandwiches i would be like popo you know uh -huh. i'm hungry so she'd go to the refrigerator she'd get a piece of wonder bread uh -huh. and there was a bunch of us so my uh -huh. cousins were there too so we'd all have to eat and she'd take the one piece of wonder bread uh -huh. there'd be butter in the house right slab a little bit of butter uh -huh. fold it in half uh -huh. there you go kid oh wow you know? sandwich yes yeah. so those were the you know but it wasn't you know always like that you know we had a place mm. that was downstairs our apartment that sold the best hagaus. And hagaus are the crystal shrimp dumplings that mm. you could kind of see through mm -hmm. when you steam them and they're packed with this hand chopped shrimp. I make them now at my store. We've done some really cool chefy things to it, but really that inspiration came from me going down to that little place when I was hungry as a kid and I can still taste them today. Mm. What they tasted like they were the best. Do you try to em had. emulate that, those memories at your shop? That's what I do primarily yeah. is most of the cooking I do these days, whether it's at my shop or anywhere else where my inspiration comes from within is memories from mm. being raised in Chinatown back in the day. Mm. And so growing up there, what was that like as a kid? Did you have free reign? Were you just exploring on your own? Were your parents strict? Did they make you, you know, stay close? It's a complete 180 of how kids are being raised today. Uh -huh. Kids stay in the house. They were on the computer. Mm -hmm. They're watched over a little bit more. I spent a lot of time in that little apartment with my grandmother. We were four, five, six, mm -hmm. seven, eight, nine door you could always leave the house the door was always open mm. we would leave as a bunch and walk three blocks on our own to the park mm -hmm. and there was never any question of safety the mm -hmm. whole neighborhood knew who you are mm -hmm. you know there was always somebody on the street that knew who you are mm -hmm. you know these days it's by phone right so my my wife has this tracker for my kid <laughs> you know on the phone you know and so the exact equivalent of back in the day tracker was that you 
stick your head out the window and you'd see your neighbor halfway down the block with it. You seen my kid? Yeah, he's at the park. That's funny. You know? That's funny. And, and yeah. so that was the track. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? And we knew what time, you know, we came home and the family would know when you were coming home. Yeah, because you had to come home for dinner. Yeah. Soon you got to eat. Yeah. You know, we, we're hungry. Right. It's not even the dinner bells coming. We're coming home because right, we're right, hungry. Right, we right, want right, to eat. Right. So those were the good old days, yeah, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's always interesting growing up in a densely packed neighborhood. Everybody knows what's going on. Sometimes for good and for bad, right? Like it's like everybody's in your business, right? Yes, All the time. Yes. All the time. They didn't build those walls of the tenements thick. I got to tell you, they were pretty thin, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I asked you before, and you gave two separate answers, which I thought was great, about common misconceptions of Chinese food in China and then also in America. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, there's lots, lots of misconceptions of the Chinese food. Back in the day, as I was growing up as a kid, I could even feel it and hear it. And, and, and you know, obviously, I have a different point of view of it now as a chef and being sure. somebody that owes his career to food and right. draws from his culture. But back in the day, I went to school and the, you know, the climate was the kids would put their fingers on the ends of their eyes and go ching chong and, mm. and, and stuff like that. So it was very much in the open where we were very much discriminated against. And it happens a lot in the food. So, you know, if you're talking misconceptions of Chinese food in America, you know, you go from the whole gambit. I even, I don't like talking about it because it's a very dark place to be, to have been, and to have sure, uh, been exposed to it first No, of head. course, it's probably bad memories. But the reason I asked is because I think sometimes it's nice to get it out there on the table and have a conversation about it. And, but yes, it's uncomfortable and it's not, yeah. it's not a fun thing. To when you about. got, you know, people come up to you and say, hey, and call you a racial slur and like, you guys, I can't believe you guys eat dog and cats. And, mm. you know, you, I, I know you put rats in your food, mm. you know, and it almost makes the MSG thing kind of like almost acceptable. Right. <laughs> when they, when they take right. it to that extreme, right. you know, right. but from being dirty, to MSG, to putting different animals that are not acceptable in your food, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to gloppy, too thick sauces, mm -hmm. to putting excess, excess sugar in your food, to having it not be healthy. And all these things are centered around the stigmas of Chinese food, like no other cuisine in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm still searching. I'm still searching for that answer on why mm -hmm. it happens primarily, you know, and I know it does happen to other cuisines. I don't want to take away from that. But I've experienced it firsthand mm -hmm, through this mm -hmm. cuisine. And I believe I see it a lot more centered on this cuisine for some strange reason. Mm. And the weird thing about it now, you look about it, right? You look around, right? Chinese food's hot now, especially in New York. It's going through some renaissance. So what's going to happen? People mm. are going to want to make money off of it. Mm -hmm. And you got chefs and people coming in and saying they, you know, want to cook Chinese food, can cook Chinese food, are great at cooking Chinese food. But really, you know, they read a couple of cookbooks, maybe, you know, they spent some time yeah. in some Chinese restaurants. Add a couple of ingredients. And, and all of a sudden, yeah. snap, they're, a, you know, a, a Chinese food master right, right. because they want to make money. Right. You know, I get that, but I'm not even talking as a Chinese person. I'm talking any chef out there, you know, worth their weight will know that you got to put the time in, sure. you got to put the sure. effort in. Well, there are so many regions within China. I know. So we do Spanish food and in and, and Spain alone, and Spain's a small country. There, there are lots of regions in Spain and all the regions are very distinct in their cooking. And there's really no one just blanket Spanish cuisine. It's, it's super regional. And, and China is a larger country, more regions. Yes. But being Chinese, I know that there's a soul 
of the culture that runs through the food that you can identify with it, especially if you come from China or you are Chinese. Mm-hmm. And there's just the feeling you get from Chinese food, no matter what region it is. It comes from not eating Chinese food in restaurants. It right. comes from eating Chinese food in the home. Your first generation born in America. So my mother was born here. My father uh-huh. was born in China. Uh-huh. But my grandparents came on my mother's side, came here, like I said, in the early 1900s. Uh-huh. And they and then they settled in, had a bunch of kids. And then those kids had kids. And we all kind of lived in the same apartment for a while. So, so what were your memories around, especially your grandparents who weren't born here and your father who wasn't born here and their food culture? This was back in the day. This is mm. the 1900s. This is not the 2000s. Mm -hmm. This is not people coming over here and just, what am I going to do now? These were people that were fleeing from starvation. I'm sure they had stories of their travels over and of getting settled. Yeah, it's a Chinese household, though, so it's very proper, and they don't really tell us anything. Their job was to raise us and put food on the table and Mm. to make sure you did the right thing and uh, were kept alive. Mm. You know, it was a lot more simpler goals at the, mm-hmm. <laughs> in those days. Mm-hmm. So, so they didn't the, share a lot so of, of the their stories weren't, weren't yeah. shared too much. You know, the personal things, just that's just how it is in the Chinese household. Mm-hmm. The stories were, were very rare. It was really more about how you can get through the day. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you this, just looking back on those days, you know, knowing where they came from and the hard life that they must have had to come here sure. and leave their country and come here and not speak a word of English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Also, back in those days, the community helped you a lot. You know, it wasn't, you went, didn't go to your councilman, you didn't go to a community leader so Mm -hmm. so much, but the people around you, your neighbors, your Mm -hmm. family always took care of you. You were poor, but you always had money because Mm -hmm. if you didn't have it, somebody gave it to Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody would take care of you. It's really cool to to think about you're in in a situation where there is one bowl of rice to go around and your neighbor has that one bowl of rice. He's sharing half that bowl of rice mm. with you. Mm. You know, that's the only bowl of rice that you have to look forward to till you don't know. Mm-hmm. You have no idea when your next meal is coming, mm. but your neighbor is going to give you half it's a of sense it. of community. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I'd like to say that exists still today, but I don't think as much. It's, yeah. It's probably more rare, yeah. you know? Mm. So what food memories do you have around them trying to were upset because they couldn't find ingredients that reminded them of home? Or do you think that they pretty much adapted and moved on? And Yeah, so I think that on the contrary, food was one of the things in our community that made people happy. Mm. So, you know, everybody says how good Chinese food is. And that's the positive thing, mm-hmm. you know, despite all these yeah, things and all these stigmas and all these things that have people have just piled up on top of us. There's also a whole other side of it. The flip side of that coin is, you know how many people love Chinese mm-hmm. food throughout this world? Mm-hmm. You know how many people appreciate Chinese food throughout this world? So that's yeah. why we've withstood all these years <laughs> because at its base, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so the restaurants and the establishments within the Chinese community, you know, in Chinatown back in those days, there were restaurants that were dual restaurants and there were restaurants that were only for one. And there were very few restaurants that were only for the other. And I'll explain that in a Mm -hmm. second. So what I mean that is that if you take today's Chinatown right now, Mm -hmm. the Manhattan one is far different than the one in Brooklyn. Mm. And 
It's different than the one in Flushing because primarily the one in Manhattan is the one that all the tourists want to go to first. Sure. There's a little bit of where they want to go to Flushing because the people who do know, there's a uh, regional difference. You know, the Flushing mm. is where you want to go for kind of more northern style mm -hmm. Chinese food and Chinatown in Manhattan still based heavily within Cantonese food, although the, you know, the Fujianese is coming, it's, it's starting to spread out, but originally it was Cantonese and Toysan food. Mm. So, but because of its location in Manhattan, it's easier for the tourists to come and check out Chinatown there and then go to wherever, you know, you have Little Italy, you have Soho, you have, you know, all these other things. But so Chinatown became a tourist, is, is a tourist spot, but Chinatown is also a community where a hell of a lot of Chinese people live and work. Mm -hmm. So there are restaurants that cater only to that community. Mm. There are restaurants that cater mostly primarily to the tourists. And then there were dual restaurants that have menus for both. Mm. When we went out to go out to eat, we knew which place we wanted to go to to eat. And in the sense that we knew this place specialized in this dish. And if you wanted to Got get it. that dish, you went to that restaurant. We went to another restaurant to get this style of food or this dish mm -hmm. because they did it better. And mm -hmm. you had like seven or eight different restaurants that you would go to. And I'm not talking elaborate dinners, you know, you're talking about picking up a box of rice with meat in it in a cardboard box, mm -hmm. but it's still damn good, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then that's kind of, that's how you eat. You know, we would all kind of like eat. If we went out to the restaurant and sit at the table, that's one thing. Another thing is, you know, you'd, we'd buy a whole bunch of food to go and bring it home and eat it. Or we'd buy an order and stand outside and squat in front of the restaurant. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you mm. know, And that's pretty much how you ate. But the common denominator in, in it is that whether you were born here and you basically grew up with the food and you knew what you were eating, or you just recently emigrated here and your heart came from China, either way, you're going to come here and you're still going to enjoy the food. Mm. That's how good it was. And that's how, that's why there's some sort of misconceptions because in the Chinese people that were running these restaurants, they knew what we wanted and they knew what everybody else wanted. Mm. And that's how they did it. Now, I guess those lines are blurred. Right? Mm. So a lot more people come in and say, hey, we want what, you know, the Chinese families are eating. Mm -hmm. And so that was cool. I mean, you, we were mentioning Bourdain before and I, we kind of delved that into one of his episodes of No Reservation. I took him down to Hopkey in Chinatown, mm. and he grew up in the family setting where they would come to Chinatown every weekend and order the pork fried rice mm -hmm. and, the, and the egg rolls mm -hmm, and the uh, mm -hmm. spare ribs, things like that. And, and I'm like, yeah, we did that too. But instead we had black bean snails mm. and we had a pan fried crab and, mm. and wok sauteed flounder. And when we ate those things while we were watching you guys eat those, you know, your things. And, and he was asking me, is there anything wrong with that? I was like, no, you guys were happy and we were happy. Mm -hmm, we were actually mm -hmm. happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, you know, it makes everybody happy. Right. 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 Food is good. Yeah. No, food is good. Yeah, I interviewed his assistant and co-producer, Lori Wolliver, and among other things, we were talking about Anthony and what she learned working with him, and it sounded like he was ready to learn everything. That's a great honor, and you did it a couple times. Yes. So lately, there is a narrative of, you know, chefs that want to make Chinese food better or make it better in their own way. And I'll tell you, Anthony 
God bless his soul. You know, I miss him. He's one of those guys we all took for granted. Mm. You know, when I hear his voice on CNN, you know, on uh, the reruns of his shows and really realize that you're never going to hear that again. Mm. It's really kind of a thing that really shakes you because mm-hmm. he's one of the true gems that you would find in yeah. this world. Great at what he did. And, you know, you, you know it's never going to come around again. But have that narrative of people want to improve it. And I, with him and with John George worked for John George Ronald Richter, who worked in Asia for a long time. And he was one of the guys that, you know, one of the first non-Asian chefs to come over, settle in New York, and really become famous for doing Asian food. You know, I spent years in his kitchen. I never once heard him, just like Bourdain, who had the same attitude, ever say that they intended to make it better. They just marveled at all the new techniques and mm. all the new flavors that they got introduced to and just couldn't wait to couldn't wait to play around with them. Mm. And Bourdain had a key to the world that very few people have. Mm-hmm. And he used that key to delve into lots of issues. But the one thing that he always used was the channeling of food. And he always respected where that food came from and how it was made and who prepared it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So before I asked you about things that you learn working in a restaurant kitchen, and one of the things that you said, which I, I really enjoyed, was don't piss off the cooks in strange kitchens. So whether you're coming into a strange kitchen, an established kitchen, a kitchen that has people that have been working there who care, that really care about the food and really want to do food, it doesn't matter whether you're coming in there to do a tasting or you're coming in there as a new cook trying to you know set his place in on the line, cooks are very competitive, mm. very territorial. Mm-hmm. They're giving and, they, and they're generous, but you have to kind of be accepted by the group mm. first. And the only way to do that is show there's them There's a vetting process. Yeah, right? there's definitely a vetting <laughs> process. Because they don't want to, most of the time you're, you're coming to a kitchen and these cooks are doing 15 hours of work in a nine hour day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so they mm-hmm. have no time to carry mm-hmm. you. You have to carry your own weight and prove to them that you can make life easier for them mm-hmm. before they think right. about life, making life easier yeah. for you. So, and then there were, we're also, you know, a, we still have that kind of old pirate mm. bunch mentality. You know, there's lots of craziness going on and mm-hmm. they'll mess with you. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, cooks will mm-hmm. mess with you and they have no problems messing with you either from funny pranks to you're talking about people who are underpaid, overworked, sure. and they definitely want you to prove to them that you are worthy of any attention from them before yeah. they help you out and before you become a family. But once you do, you become a very close-knit family. Mm. And, you know, there's always differences between family and there's always some sort of tension going on. It's a really high, it's a place where there's really high tension, especially during service sure. and just before service. I mean, the yeah. worst sound Doors in my are going to open at a certain time and, you know. The worst sound in my head is when you're about 45 minutes from finishing your prep at about 5.15 mm-hmm. and you need that extra half an hour mm-hmm. and the ticket machine goes off. Yeah, I know. And all, you know. I know. <laughs> All you're doing is praying that I hear that, machine that in ticket my sleep. doesn't have anything right. for you on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of talk about mental health right now in current restaurant talk. So do you have any thoughts around mental health in the kitchen? 
yeah, we're all nuts. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> we're all nuts and we're all crazy. The only thing is when you're young, you don't know it, right? So you don't know it. I'm older now and well, I realize I got to deal, right? deal with my stress levels and how to calm it down and, and, and take a deep breath. And, right. and, you know, and every day is a crisis, yeah. but you know, it is a crisis, but when you're young, what you're really thinking about is the beer after work. All right. Right. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? That's all you're thinking about. Right. You know, that's you know, that's the highlight of your day. But yeah, seriously, you know, you're in a restaurant and you're in a restaurant environment, whether they let you drink in the restaurant or whether you're going out with your, your coworkers afterwards, there is lots of alcohol that is, and there's lots of self-medication going on mm -hmm. in this industry. And, you know, you're putting the two of those together and, yeah. you know, now you're- And it's never a long-term solution. It's usually a bomb. Well, it depends at some point, you it's define, gonna, I define yeah. long term. Yeah, well, right, right. <laughs> but know? it's usually, you know, when you're when you're coping with drugs and alcohol, it's usually at some point during your career, it's gonna become a problem. It's not a long term solution of a way to of a way to cope. It's a know? long. It's a problem you know? for everything. If from yeah. from you know the actual person having a problem to calling in sick. I mean. You know, I know when a guy's drunk and he's calling, you know, he's he, and he's calling in sick mm -hmm. because when a guy's drunk and he calls in sick, this is what happens. He calls you 15 minutes after he's supposed to be at work mm -hmm. and tells you he's sick, mm -hmm. right? And I, I just basically tell him, listen, if you were sick, right, <laughs> you would have told me hours ago. Right. That would have been the first thing you would have gotten up right. and told me you were sick because that's how sick people are right. when they make sure that they tell you they're sick. When you're drunk, I know what you did. You got drunk and you've stared at that phone for the last four hours, <laughs> figuring out how to tell me you're sick and get out of work today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so you're a big supporter of small business. Tell me about that. I'm a big supporter of small business because that's what I do. My, yeah. my whole operation is based around being a mom and pop. I do everything from searching out spaces to negotiating the leases to building the restaurant to working the line to cleaning out the you're grease all, traps. You're to, all departments. You know, and, yeah, and I get that. I'm a big proponent of small business because that's where you get content. That's mm -hmm. where you get creative. That's People in small business are the most creative mm. of any part of business in this country. You know, the, you know it comes from the small guy, you got to mm -hmm. give these people opportunities or else, you know, all you're going to have is high level, big corporate companies. And what fun is that? Yeah. And, and that's what really strikes me as interesting because sometimes people focus on food careers or chefs that are giant and that have tons of outlets and that are just massive and oh how many restaurants do you have now how many restaurants do you have now and i love the fact that that you bring that to the forefront is that it's in small business where where the talent really is born and is you know it's cultivated it's great when you have a place that is not entirely motivated by money mm. if you ask most of the small business people that are running these establishments, their motivation most of the time is not going to be money first. Mm. They would like to make money. <laughs> you know, we all need money, but they do it because whatever they're doing, whether they're cooking, whether they're painting, whether they're building, it doesn't matter. They're doing it from their heart because they mm. want to make something good. They want to make something great. They want to, you know, they're, they're figuring out something that they, it's a problem that they want to solve and bring out to the world. And the money only comes in as a necessity and as gravy at the end of it. 
So that's the difference. You know, when you're talking about people who really want to move the world in a creative way, it usually comes from small business. Mm, And to lose that would be awful because small businesses what pick up most of the burden in this country as far as money wise, as far as establishment wise, and we pay the most, right? Mm. I don't, you know, talk about it. it's small business. I can't hire hundred thousand dollar lawyers and accountants right. to kind of, right. you know, sure. you know, figure those things out for me. I figure it all out on myself. And really, I'm not a businessman. I have no training in this. Mm. You know, I, I my training is in creating food. Mm-hmm. So you know, and trying to think keep of, your your business alive. Think so about that. So you have to do both. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's family that you have to go home to, and you know, so it's a very rewarding life, but it's definitely something that has a lot of hurdles that you have to jump every day. Hmm. Yeah, I will agree with that. So you say now you're getting into candy making. So where did that come from? Yeah, so as a chef, you're always looking at different outlets of fun things to mm-hmm, do. And mm-hmm. it's really, for me, it's really technique-based, right? So I always wanted to learn the technique of folding dumplings. Mm-hmm. And of course, I did that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, as a cook, you're a garmanger and you're making salads. And all you do is look across the line and I wish I could saute like that guy or I wish I could work the grill like that guy. And when you get the chance, you try to be the best at that technique. Mm. In Chinese food, there's a lot of different techniques. In French food, there's a technique to making terrines. Generally, there's a technique to butchering fish and you want to be the best at it that you can. So for me, it's technique driven. And basically over the summer, last summer, my wife's uncle came over from China and spent uh, the summer with the family. And I'm chit-chatting with him. I don't know him too well. And it turns out he, in Shanghai, worked the night markets. And he was a dragon's hair cotton candy maker. Hmm. And what that means is that there is a technique that you take sugar and you pull it about a number of times and it comes out from one strand and the amount of times that you pull it yields over 12,000 strands mm, yeah. and you're hand pulling cotton candy. Mm. So, you know, if everybody's seen the cotton candy at the circus mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, at the zoo from and the machine, you know, it has the machine yeah. and you have the little cone mm-hmm. and, you know, it shoots the air. No, this has no machine. Wow. I take a piece of sugar and I stretch it and oh I keep God. stretching it. And ne- it's next like, thing make, you know, like making noodles. Yeah. Basically, I used to do that. So yeah. that's where yeah. I kind of was a little bit easier of a transition. Yeah. So when my, my wife's uncle told me he did this, I basically said, well, now you're going to have to teach me. And he had no problem teaching me. So we spent the summer working on it and I kind of fell in love with Did it. Did he, re- he remembered well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of an art and craft mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. And he, he loved the fact that he could teach me this. So I've had it before in America, mm-hmm. but I did the research and it turns out that the only place that you can get it fresh pulled in front of you mm-hmm. is a little stall in Montreal. Mm-hmm. So you can't get it anywhere again in New York anymore. There mm-hmm. was a place in New York a while back, but that it's- How it's hot is the sugar? It's room temperature. But it's cooling as you're pulling it. No, I, I can leave it out for oh, wow. a day and come back to it and pull it. So without any heat or anything like that. Wow. So so it's a technique, it's an art, and there's, there's a way of pulling in. Wow. There's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to learn. I spent the whole summer doing it, and I fell in love with the technique. 
And do you just, flavor? Is it flavored or no? It's it's just basically just sugar. The sugar. Yeah. There's what happens is, and then you take the strands, and you, I guess traditionally it comes with this peanut filling, so it's wrapped around this oh, peanut wow. filling. So you get these crunchy oh, wow. peanuts around the really soft, glistening hairs of oh, the of the cotton candy. And so when I realized that it was kind of a rare thing, and that I, you know, you know, I've done the pulled noodles before, mm-hmm. and you know, yeah, I remember I saw a an old clip of you pulling noodles on Martha Stewart. Yes, that. <laughs> was really cool. I'll, yeah. I'll get off the subject for a minute. Yeah. You know, it was great. So Martha Stewart wanted somebody to demonstrate pulled noodles and she called me up and I'll tell you a funny story about this. Did right? you believe so, it was really her? Or did you think it was a prank call? No, no, no. I, I mean, <laughs> I've done the TV thing and, you know, the assistant called me. What, okay, got it. What happened was we started negotiating and said, yeah, I'll come on the show. Why yeah. not? I'll do it. Right. And now that was that here in New York? It was in New uh-huh. York. And she said, well, you're going to have to give the recipe to us. And I was like, well, no, I don't do that. And so then she was like, well, you then you're not coming on the show. And I was like, okay. And so I said goodbye to that. And about two weeks later, they called me up and they're like, are you sure? You don't? And I'm like, well, I'm not giving you the recipe. So, so let me ask you that, about that because so I watched this clip and in the clip, she says that you were maybe the fourth person she had on the show over her career, the show pulling noodles and no one would give her the recipe. Yes, yes. She so was is, it, is, it, is it really, is it territorial? Is there it are things is that, it, yeah, there are things that, know? yeah, you know, there, yes. So there, you know, it's, it's, Hey, it means jobs and it's a craft sure. and, right. you know. But so it's not more in the the technique, which. It's it's a lot in the technique, yeah, a yeah, lot. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of the technique. But again, it's, for me, it's something like, like, I know you're more. Because it can't Stewart, be more than like, honestly, like three ingredients or four. I don't know. At most, I could imagine maybe four ingredients. But anyway. Yeah. So, okay. So continue. So, yeah. Well, for me, it's, you know, and, I, and a lot of people ask me for certain things and like that. I was like. You have to earn it. And I'll just give it to you. It's not something I'm keeping a secret for. It's it's something that's a, it's a kitchen thing. You right, gotta earn it. Right. Come into my kitchen and work for me right. for a year. Right. Right. I'll teach you everything. Yeah. It's respectable. Okay. I don't yeah. care who you are, what you do, whatever. Yeah. Come and work for me for a year. Right. And I'll teach you whatever you want to right, know. Right, right, but right, right. you don't come to me and I don't know who you are right. and say, teach me this or show me that. My answer to you is no, yeah, go learn it yourself. Like, yeah, who are you? Go yeah. pay your dues. Yeah, yeah. You know, so well, that's basically what it is. And I don't care if you're Martha Stewart or whoever. You know, for me, great. you want to learn something, you pay your dues. You know, <laughs> and Martha Stewart's definitely running. You know, to my kitchen with her apron to you know to flip a walk for me. Right, you know, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, she. While I was watching the clip, she she definitely looked like she was really she was into it. She was really interested in yes. in the noodles, and you could you could just kind of tell. She made me pay yeah, though because yeah. you noticed that the uh, she brought on her housekeeper and yeah. she finished the recipe because I wouldn't give her the recipe. Yeah. She killed half my oh, my did. time uh, on the show. Yes. How long ago was that? Was that like uh, it was probably about six or seven yeah, years ago? Something yeah. like that. Pre incarceration. Yes, pre incarceration. Yeah. Sure, and, yeah, but yeah, she yeah. does have a presence. She is somebody you respect when she walks into the room. Sure, she no, commands can, that. It's yeah. definitely you know. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. Yeah. I'm just, it's kind of Oprah esque. I'd imagine. I've never met um, Oprah before, but yeah. yeah. So you you you've been working on pulling. Yes. So I spent pulling I, sugar I, this past okay. year. I've been, and then you know, the more you get into it, and the better you get at a technique, you kind of fall in love with it, and mm. you kind of get lost in it. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing the hand pulled cotton candy for a little while now, and and I'm putting it on the menu. So pretty soon, New That's York awesome. will have a hand pulled cotton candy 
place and come you know uh, come and check and it this out. will be yeah. at the uh, uh, at the new location it'll be at also. the new location yes. and, and tell me so where's the new location so the new location is on smith street uh -huh. in brooklyn's so it's funny i i call it Bowram hill i used to have a restaurant there it was in cobble hill which is down the block that that whole neighborhood used to be Bowram hill uh -huh. but it's cut into smaller neighborhoods like cobble hill and carroll gardens okay and so you know i got there so i started to get curious on what the address this neighborhood actually is. Mm -hmm. And so I asked 15 people on the block and I got out of the 15 people, Cobble Hill, Carroll Gardens, Bowram Hill. And then they, they combine it and call it Bokaka. <laughs> right? and, I don't know if you, you know, want to, are you, you going to call it Bokaka? Yeah, so I'm like, all right, you know, so I'm just basically like picking one. I call it Bowram Hill. That's funny. Bowram Hill. Yeah. That's funny. And uh, so it's, it's in Bowram Hill. It, it should be open probably in early June. That's awesome. And we're doing some different dishes there, but we still will have all the favorite dumplings that everybody likes, you know, the dry aged beef dumplings and the incredible hog and mm. things like that. So in each place I do, we keep certain dishes, but I like to have the menu slightly different, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I think having, you know, because neighborhoods are different. It's great to, to customize something to a neighborhood and showcase something a little bit different in each neighborhood. I mean, why do everything is exactly the same? Yeah, I don't want to do that because, you know, I'm a chef and I like to keep things yeah. a little bit different and try some new things. So this gives me mm -hmm. the uh, opportunity to do that. And, you know, it keeps it fun. It keeps you motivated. And, uh, you know, who doesn't like to cook different dishes? And, and I know you, you get know. bored of doing the same thing. Yeah. So so this is a good lead into to a little game, if that's OK. So it's three things. They can be real things or not real things. The, you know, there's no wrong answer. Pressure. So, <laughs> I know. I know. So, so the first three things, which will be easy for you, three things that make a dumpling great. So like three must have things for a dumpling. All right. So I'm going to take it from a personal point of view. Sure, right? I, I, and, absolutely. You know, so, any, any point of view you, know, you want to take it. I say handmade dough. Okay. Okay. I say a great juicy filling mm. and I say cook to order. Mm. Can you shortcut the cooking? Like, can you pre, can you like cook it halfway? That is not cooked to ah, order. Good answer. <laughs> so we do pie at the restaurant and we make it from scratch. And, yeah. and I know you could, some people like cook it halfway and then they stop it and then they finish it. But we like cooking it from scratch. We, we like telling people we're cooking it from scratch and it, and it takes a long time and it takes up stove space for that amount yes. of time. And that is, you know, so people ask me, you know, what makes my dumplings good? And I tell them an answer similar to that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they always, say, oh, you know, look, I get it. Like the guy that does the dumplings in Chinatown for four for a dollar, mm -hmm. you know, five for a dollar, mm -hmm. whatever it is, he can't do cook to order. Sure. You know, somebody slaps $20 on his table and says, mm -hmm. give me a hundred dumplings. Right. How are you going to do that to order? You right. know, that's right, his right, business. Right, 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 I get right, that. Right. You want to do paella halfway. Listen, if you do paella halfway, it's not going to be as good as when you do it. Yeah. Do it. So that's the sacrifice. The, the rice gets grumpy. Realize that yeah. that's the sacrifice. Right. You want to make it great. Right. Or you want to make it sellable. Right. 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 So, right. you know, every kitchen's not, you know, not equipped with, to be able to do that. Sure. But sure. The, the guy that does do that can tell you that my paella is better than yours mm. because I've made the sacrifice. Mm. Okay. Three terrible dumpling flavors. And this can be real or made up. All right. Some, like, all right. Some people are going to be pissed. I say this cheese. I never <laughs> put cheese on a dumpling. I just don't. Now there's some good ones out there. I get yeah. it. You know, some people do it. 
that's just ain't me personally, uh-huh, man. Uh-huh. I can't do that, man. Uh-huh. That's just like, you know, that's sacrilege for me. Yeah. And I wouldn't do that to my own, but right. whatever you, anybody else wants right. to do is cool, right. Right. cool right. with right. me. Right. 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 I don't judge, for just, just for me. I yeah. got it. Cheese is the big one. Uh-huh. Fruit is another. Uh-huh. You know, it, it's it's a safe All thing. fruit or like, could there be a tiny bit of fruit in, in the mixed in like the meat or... You know, I'm getting in, into a nuance. Here, I, I don't know. But, but you know, if a drop of lemon juice were happen to find its way in the filling, <laughs> okay. I would, I would got forgive it, got you. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, so cheese and fruit. Cheese and fruit. There goes the catering spread, right? We'll do that. And when you get to herby, you know, okay. it's 15 different herbs. And uh-huh. things, you know, dumpling simple. You know, it's kind of like a hamburger. Uh-huh. And I know there's lots of designer hamburgers out there. Right. But when they start putting everything in the kitchen right. sink into a hamburger, it's no right. longer a hamburger, it's a meatloaf. Right. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know. That's the truth. Yes. So my last answer is just don't put too much mm. of anything in there. You mm. know, I like that. Yeah. Okay. What about three lessons learned growing up in Chinatown? Wow. That's a good one. That's a really good question. So when I grew up in Chinatown, you know, don't wander, don't find yourself on the wrong block. (laughs) You know, it was gangland when I grew up in Chinatown. You find yourself in the wrong block and bad things are going to happen. However, the second lesson is you find out how good you want food and how how much you love food because you will wind up on the wrong block to get to that restaurant Uh, that has the food that you want. Oh, right. Wow. And so you'd spend, you know, know, I'd be like, there'd be time of days where like, you know, that the guys aren't hanging out in mm-hmm. front of the store. So you can so kind of sneak to go. in and get, yeah, uh-huh. to go. or you'd kind of like hang around the block and kind of walk back and forth a little uh-huh. bit. You know what I mean? And, you know, you were always kind of like, you go in and order and then maybe you'd leave and come back and get it uh-huh. and wait in the restaurant, uh-huh, things uh-huh. like that, you know? So, uh-huh. and, and then funny thing you know chinatown one of the funny lessons is you know we used to hang out late in chinatown at night and chinatown for some reason the acoustics are very loud Hmm. and if you want to go to sleep in chinatown at night it's going to be tough because the garbage trucks come out in chinatown Mm. and they you know every you know chinatown's got a lot of restaurants Mm so a garbage truck could spend an hour Mm -hmm. on your block Mm -hmm. and you could hear the you know the the mashing of it so you have to be a heavy sleeper Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. that's another lesson those are some of these little kind of quirky things that you know you might not think about you know, no no that's great there it's you know? neighborhood specific okay so and lastly three three fears everybody's got fears tell me three wow i know well i have the same fears that every person my age has you know i worry about my kids mm-hmm. you know my my son there's nothing really to worry about i'm knocking on wood right now uh-huh. kids growing up great but it doesn't matter when you're a parent right you're always worrying so that you know i'm always fearful that the shoe is going to drop or right. something's going to happen you right. know like any parent but you know i guess it keeps you sharp you know keeps right. you on top of your <laughs> kid of course failing mm. you work hard in this business and you've kind of got a you know your name is up and coming and you've kind of got a few rungs up the ladder than you did a few years ago. And I'm getting to do podcasts with, you know, mm. with guys like you and, you. you know, it feels all good, but you know, you always feel like you walk around the corner and, you know, the other shoe is going to drop and, yeah. you know, you, you, you know, and failure and that keeps you sharp too. Mm-hmm. Right. So fair failing is mm-hmm. definitely going to keep you sharp. So that's two biggie, mm-hmm. two biggies. I, you know, I don't know. I fear the the giants are going to be bad for the next 10 years. <laughs> I fear that. <laughs> I, fear, I fear the, the, the 2019 draft because it doesn't look good at all. <laughs> you know what? Fair enough. 
Fair enough. Good answers. Thank you for playing. Awesome. All right. So, Chris, this was awesome. I, I learned a lot on on this on this episode. I I'm sure the listeners will too. I'm glad and I could help you. Yeah, you answered a lot of questions. If you want to check out some social for Chris at Chef Chris Chung, C H E U N G, you can also check out at East Wind Snack Shop. Where you can go onto the web, eastwindsnackshop.com or chef Chris Chung, C H E U N G.com. Chris, thank you. Awesome. This was awesome. I had a blast. Good. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. Find us on all things social at Culinary Mindcast and on the web, canelasf.com backslash podcast. Don't forget to rate us where you found us.